Let me do a quick crash course on book three, sorry, book two of Mere Christianity, and then we'll get to our main topic tonight, and that is, well, I'll introduce it in just a minute. We'll do book number three. But book number two, let me take you back to book number one that we talked about last week. C.S. Lewis came to this very logical conclusion of why Christianity is the only really option for religion. He doesn't really denounce all other world religions. He just simply says Christianity is the only one that makes sense for, here's the observation, there is a moral law inside of us. He just could see that everywhere he looked, all of us are governed by a moral law. Just to sit and hear people argue, they're arguing about the fact that someone did something that we all accept they should not have done. So there's this moral law inside us, and yet no one lives up to the moral law. So if there is a supreme being, we're, we're pushing against him every day of our lives, and we're probably not going to do any better tomorrow unless we get some help, and hence his conclusion that we need a redeemer. Now, book two is really about our belief in a redeemer. Who is this redeemer that we need and the opposition that we face? Now, he kind of credits the devil with a little bit more power than I think the devil has, but I think he wants to talk about the, that, that dual nature of influenced by the natural man and the need for a redeemer. So let me just kind of give you a couple of the great quotes from book two. I really, really love this definition. He says, wickedness, when you examine it, turns out to be the pursuit of some good in the wrong way. I think that's just one of the most brilliant definitions. Wickedness, if you examine it, turns out to be the pursuit of some good in the wrong way. But I love what he says in book two about Christ. Let me just read this. Um, okay, we're just going to have to... I'm going to just go fast so we can get to book three. If a thing is free to be good... It is also free to be bad. Amazing how he caught so many gospel principles about agency, a redeemer, the natural man. And why does God grant agency? Which we kind of connected to 2 Nephi chapter 2 last week. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. Isn't he quoting 2 Nephi 2? But he didn't have 2 Nephi 2. That's the amazing thing. A world of automata, of creatures that work like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that they must be free. Of course God knew what would happen if he used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently he thought it worth the risk. Perhaps we feel inclined to disagree with him. But there is a difficulty about disagreeing with God. 
He is the source from which all your reasoning power comes. You could not be right and he wrong any more than a stream can rise higher than its own source. When you are arguing against him, you are arguing against the very power that makes you able to argue at all. It is like cutting off the branch you're sitting on. Brilliant observation. If God thinks this state of war in the universe a price worth paying for free will, that is for making a live world in which creatures can do real good or real harm and something of real importance can happen instead of a toy world which only moves when he pulls the strings, then we may take it, it is worth paying. I think that is a brilliant observation. So what is it? Where did the dark power go wrong? Where did Satan go wrong? And where do we go wrong? How did the dark power go wrong? Let me jump here. The moment you have a self at all, there is a possibility of putting yourself first. Wanting to be the center, wanting to be God, in fact. That was the sin of Satan. And that was the sin he taught the human race. Continuing with just the yellow, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. The reason why we can never succeed in this, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol and would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is just not there. There is no such thing. Um, I do want to end with this. He, did, he then gets into the claim of Jesus to be the Messiah. We believe there needed to be a redeemer. There has to be a redeemer because there's this moral law and we don't live up to it, so there has to be a redeemer. Now, we claim that Jesus is that redeemer. And then he gives this, the claim to forgive sin. I want to talk about the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really a preposterous as to be comic we can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toes and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man himself 
unrobed and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money. Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we could give to his conduct. Yet this is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom had their sins whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he were the party chief concerned, the person chiefly offended by all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply that I can... I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. Yet, and this is the strange significant thing, even his enemies, when we read the Gospels, do not usually get the impression of silliness and conceit. Still, less do unprejudiced readers. Christ says that he is humble and meek and we believe him. Not noticing that if he were really a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we could attribute to some of his sayings. I am here trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say of him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. C.S. Lewis. All right, that's book, uh, that's book two. There's a couple other, I don't know if we, I'll leave the rest of it to you. Um, so many good things we've got to skip. I want to get to book three. Christian behavior. Now, allow me to set this up, gospel first, C.S. Lewis second. And I think we've kind of hinted at this in previous classes. But we come to earth, and as is illustrated in the temple, we walk through three worlds on our way. We live amongst a telestial world. This world is full of telestial tendencies, telestial habits. You and I spend our days amidst the telestial world. Now, the invitation God gives you is to get out of the telestial world and come into the terrestrial. And that becomes journey number one, to go from telestial to terrestrial, to become a good person to do what is right. 
And I would suggest that is the focus of our chapels. All of the ordinances that we perform in our chapels are designed to get from celestial to terrestrial. Get out of the celestial world. And then comes invitation number two. Once you have made some progress and have become more terrestrial, the Lord comes in and says, make another change. Get out of the terrestrial world and come into the celestial. Let go of everything that is terrestrial. Now, C.S. Lewis didn't have the language to say what we can now say, because we understand one of the blessings of the restoration is we can separate this into two processes. Telestial to terrestrial, which we do here, and then terrestrial to celestial, which we focus in the temple. Now, let me point out that there are certain laws we agree to obey in each of them. In the chapel, when you were baptized, not far from here is a baptismal font, and then every Sunday right there at the sacrament table, we promise to obey. We promise to live the law of obedience. O oh God, the eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify the bread to all those who partake of it, that they are willing to eat in the, name of, in the remembrance of thy Son and witness unto thee that they are, can you name them? Willing to take upon them the name of thy Son, always remember him, and keep his commandments which, they are, given, which are given to them. There it is. We promise every sacrament meeting to obey the law of obedience. And all of this is to get out of the celestial world. We are supposed to let go of all things celestial. The law of sacrifice. Let go of all things celestial. Now, Heavenly Father, can you help me? Can you help me know what I have to do and what I have to let go of? to be more terrestrial. He says, how about I wrap it up into one package? Will you obey that package? Starting to recognize the list? Some of you should recognize the list we're making. The law of gospel, the gospel, the law of sacrifice, sorry, the law of obedience, the law of sacrifice, the law of the gospel. Now, the Lord is very interested in some specific laws of the gospel. Certain ones get a little bit more attention than others. And one of the most important laws of the gospel as we let go of the celestial and become terrestrial, you know where we're gonna go? The law of chastity. We're getting, that's number five. But he, the Lord pays particular attention to the law of chastity. There isn't much more that's celestial than the carnal, sensual man who gives in to lust. And if you're going to be a good Christian, if you're going to be terrestrial, you have to obey 
the basic law of chastity. So, C.S. Lewis is now going to talk about chapel chastity. But then he's going to push that over here. So let's save this one for just a minute. But let me just talk about, this is brilliant observation from a man who doesn't have chapel or temple ordinances to say, can we talk about chastity? So he talks about the three moralities. We'll save that for another day. But I want to jump to chastity. All right. I think it's book five, chapter five. If you want to follow with me, chapter 5, he made a fascinating discovery. Chastity is the most unpopular of Christian virtues. There is no getting away from it. The Christian rule is, hear it everyone, the Christian rule is, Either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as it is now has gone wrong. One or the other. Of course, being a Christian, I think it is the instinct which has gone wrong. But listen to his evidence. Ready? But I have other reasons for thinking so. The biological purpose of sex is children. Just as the biological purpose of eating is to repair the body. Now, if we eat whenever we feel inclined and just as much as we want, it is quite true most of us will eat too much but not terrifically too much. One man may eat enough for two, but he does not eat enough for 10. The appetite goes a little beyond its biological purpose, but not enormously. But if a healthy young man indulges his sexual appetite whenever he felt inclined, and if each produced a baby, then in 10 years he might easily populate a small village. His appetite is in ludicrous and preposterous excess to its function. Brilliant observation, right? In other words, humanity is seriously messed up and broken. No one would eat 10 times more than their body requires. But we have a sexual appetite that is grossly out of proportion to its biological purpose. Taken another way, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is to watch a girl undress on stage. Now, suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply covering a plate on the stage and then show, slowly lifting up the cover so that everyone could see, just as the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Can you imagine filling a room 
to show them a little peek at some food. Would you not conclude, would you not think that in that country, something had gone seriously wrong with the appetite for food? Wouldn't you say, this is messed up? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think there was something equally queer about the state of sex instinct among us? What year is this? 40s. He dies in 63. He does the, the radio series that becomes Mere Christianity in the 1940s. What would he say of our society in 2020s? Now, do you see what he's trying to say? He caught the vision that we have to let go of this celestial nature. We have to let go of something that clearly is out of proportion to its biological purposes. Brilliant that he caught that. And so we are not surprised to find in our chapel ordinances that very commandment. Marriage with total fidelity to your partner or abstinence. That's the Christian way. And now you can leave that here or you can let go of that, let go of that out of proportion instinct and get into a terrestrial world. Now, there's another one which we'll save for another day. But once you join the church and you're baptized and you're taking the sacrament and you're making these covenants and you're making some progress to get terrestrial, we now go in and to the temple and the Lord says, let me invite you to let go of terrestrial and become celestial. Let me invite you to make another change. And what does he ask us to do first? Now, this is on the church website, clearly taught by the church outside the temple. Don't look at me strange if I make this list. But what's the first thing he asks us to do in that transition from terrestrial to celestial? I'm asking you to obey. But what's the difference? I made that covenant in the waters of baptism. What's the temple version of obedience? Is it just a repeat? What's the point of going to the temple to repeat a covenant I've already made? In fact, I make weekly. This is not the same covenant. The temple version of obedience is different than the chapel version of obedience. What's the difference? Now, long story short, we could take hours on this subject, but where do you live the, the celestial law? This is a change of what I do. I become terrestrial by doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. How do I then become celestial? 
the law of the celestial world is lived in my head and in my heart. And one of the absolute most brilliant explanations of temple obedience is taught by C.S. Lewis. It boggles my mind how he caught it. But one of the most, I'm going to say it again and then we'll read it. The most brilliant explanations of temple obedience is taught by C.S. Lewis. And those of you who have made that covenant in the temple, I would ponder you to ask, how is this version in the temple different than this version in the chapel? Let me read you C.S. Lewis's explanation. He ties it to faith. And that's a brilliant tie, but let's read it. So I'm in mere Christianity, which is all of a sudden freezing. Let's try it again. There we go. All right, I am in mere Christianity. If you wanna see my chat, let me pull up my chapters. So here's book three. Notice it's sexual morality, Christian marriage, we're going to come to. So he talked about sexual morality here, Christian marriage here. Brilliant. We'll get to that in a second. But then he talks about forgiveness, the great sin, which we'll get to in just a minute. And notice he ends with faith. May I suggest this chapter is this faith. This chapter is temple faith and temple obedience. What we're about to read is an explanation of those of you who've been to the temple. What did you covenant when you covenanted to obey the law of obedience? Listen to his description. Um, we may have to read this whole chapter. Okay, if I read fast, is that okay? We may need to read this whole chapter. I hate to shortchange it, but I'm going to read this whole chapter. I want to start by saying something that I would like everyone to notice carefully. It is this. If this chapter, ah, we can skip this. He says, if this chapter is over your head, then go back to the chapel because you're in the temple and that's probably over your head. I think that's kind of the gist of what he's saying. If this chapter is too much for you, don't read it. Um, okay, let's start here. The thing I am going to try to explain in this chapter may be ahead of me. I may be thinking I've got there when I haven't. I can only ask instructed Christians to watch very carefully and tell me when I go wrong and others to take what I am saying with a grain of salt or something offered because it may be of help, not because I am certain that I am right. I am trying to talk about faith in the second sense, the higher sense. 
I said just now that the question of faith in this sense arises after a man has tried his best to practice the Christian virtues and found that he fails and seen that even if he could, he would only be giving back to God what was already God's own. In other words, he discovers his bankruptcy. I start thinking like King Benjamin, if you were to render all the praise and thanks, you would be unprofitable servants. Now, once again, what God cares about is not exactly our actions. What he cares about is, what that, is, is that we should be creatures of a certain kind or quality. The kind of creatures he intended us to be. Creatures related to himself in a certain way. Do you know what he's describing? He's describing the temple. And he doesn't even realize he's describing the temple. God wants us to do certain things, but he also wants us to be certain things. I do not add and relate it to one another in a certain way because that is included. If you are right with him, you will inevitably be right with all your fellow creatures. Just as if all the spokes of a wheel are fitted rightly into the hub and the rim they are bound to be in the right position one to another. As long as a man is thinking of God as his examiner who has set him a sort of paper to do or as the opposite party in a sort of bargain, as long as he's thinking of claims and counterclaims between himself and God, he is not yet in the right relation to him. He is misunderstanding what he is and what God is. And he cannot get into the right relation until he has discovered the fact of our bankruptcy. I cannot do it on my own. I cannot do it on my own. I need him. Remember the dragon? I can't peel off enough skin. I need him to cut me to the very sore. When you have made that realization, you are ready for faith in the second sense. When I say discovered, I, mean, I really mean discovered, not simply said it parrot fashion. Of course, any child, if given a certain kind of religious education, will soon learn to say that we have nothing to offer to God that is not already his, and that we find ourselves failing to offer even that without keeping something back. But I am talking of really discovering this, really finding out by experience that it's true. I can't do it. I cannot do it without him. Now, we cannot, in that sense, discover our failure to keep God's laws except by trying our very hardest and then failing. Unless we really try, whatever we say, there will always be at the back of our minds the idea that if we just tried harder next time, we shall succeed in being completely good. Now, I can't tell you how many Latter-day Saints I know that are still there. If I just tried harder, I'd get it right this time. Thus, in one sense, the road back to God is a road of moral effort, of trying harder and harder. But in another sense, it is not trying that is ever going to bring us home. All this trying leads up to the vital moment at which you turn to God and say, you must do this.
I can't. Do not, I implore you, start asking yourselves, have I reached that moment? Do not sit down and start watching your own mind to see if it is coming along. That puts a man quite on the wrong track. When the most important things in our life happen, we quite often do not know at the moment what is going on. A man does not, does not always say to himself, hello, I'm growing up. It is often only when we look back that he realizes what has happened and recognizing it as what people call growing up. You can see it even in simple matters. A man who starts anxiously watching to see whether he is going to sleep is very likely to remain wide awake. As well, the thing I am talking about now not may not happen if everyone in a sudden flash, as did St. Paul or Bunyan, it may be so gradual that no one could ever point it to a particular hour or even a particular year, what matters, and what matters is the nature of the change itself, not how we feel while it is happening. It is the change from being confident about your own efforts to the state in which we despair of doing anything for ourselves and leave it to God. I know the words leave it to God can be misunderstood, but they must stay for the moment. The sense in which a Christian leaves it to God is that he puts all his trust in Christ. Trusts that Christ will somehow share with him the perfect human obedience which he carried out from his birth to his crucifixion. That Christ will make the man more like himself and in a sense make good his deficiencies. In Christian language, he will share his sonship with us will make us like himself, sons of God. Now, in book four, I shall attempt to analyze the meaning of those words a little bit further. We'll get to that next week. If you like to put it that way, Christ offers something for nothing. He even offers everything for nothing. In a sense, the whole Christian life consists in accepting that very remarkable offer, but the difficulty is to reach the point of recognizing that all we have done and can do is nothing. That we should have liked would that that we should have liked would be for God to count our good points and ignore our bad ones. And again, in a sense, you may say that no temptation is ever overcome until we stop to overcome it. Throw up the sponge but then you could not stop trying in the right way for the right reason until you had tried your very hardest. And yet, in another sense, handing everything over to Christ does not, of course, mean that you stop trying. To trust Him means, of course, trying to do all that He says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you don't take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, you must follow, it must follow that you are trying to obey him. But trying in a new way. Do you see where he's going? This is brilliant that he's making this connection. 
If you are following Christ, you're going to try to obey him in a new way. A less worried way. Not doing things in order to be saved. But because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions. But inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. That is brilliant description of the two. This is, I will force myself to obey. Chapel obedience is, I will acquire the discipline to obey. Temple obedience is, I love him. I need him. And I want to do what he asks. I want to obey. Because he is already helping me with this process. Do you see the difference between the two? This is a discipline of obedience. This is a disposition of obedience. Let's finish. Christians have often disputed as to whether what leads the Christian home is good action or faith in Christ. I have no right really to speak on such a difficult question, but it does seem to me like asking which blade of a pair of scissors is most necessary. A serious moral effort is the only way that will bring you to the point where you throw up the sponge. Faith in Christ is the only thing to save you from despair at that moment. And out of that faith in him, good actions must inevitably come. Um, we can stop there. Do you see what he's teaching? He caught this idea that, okay, Lord, I'll obey. I know I have to. I have to. I don't drink. I can't drink. And then suddenly that becomes, I want to. I want to. Live as he wants me to live. It's the least I can do because I need him so badly. What do you want me to do, Lord? And I'll gladly do it. You see the difference? In the words of Ezra Taft Benson, let me share this. In the words of Ezra Taft Benson, President Benson said it this way. When obedience ceases to be an irritant and becomes our quest, in that moment, God will endow you with power. This is the person who obeys but is irritated that they have to obey. This is the person whose quest is to obey.
See the difference? Thoughts? Comments? Are you catching how brilliant this man was? And how in line with the gospel his teachings were? Okay, what comes next? This was, I have to give up the telestial world. I have to give up sexual morality, immorality. We go into the temple and the Lord says, now I'm asking you to sacrifice again. But this sacrifice is inside. This letting go of the terrestrial part of me is very hard. Let me give you the words of Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith described it beautifully this way. In Lectures on Faith, Lecture 6. Uh, it's right here, sorry. Come on, where is it? Here it is. For a man to lay down his all, his character and reputation, his honor, his applause, his good name among men. What is it that I can't take into the celestial kingdom, but I can still have and be a good person? What is perhaps the most terrestrial thing I have to sacrifice to go into the celestial kingdom? My pride. I have to let go of my pride. And C.S. Lewis caught that. And everyone in the church, every general authority, whoever quotes, ever talks about pride, guess who they quote? Guess who they quote when they talk about pride? Guess who Ezra Taft Benson quoted way back in 1989 when he talked about that pride was the universal sin? Guess who Dieter Uchtdorf quoted when he repeated Ezra Taft Benson's talk on the great sin of pride. Guess who all the general authorities quote when they talk about pride? C.S. Lewis. Because he caught that transition. He's caught what I have to let go of if I'm going to get into the celestial kingdom. Now, when we get to the great divorce, remember this, remember the painter, remember the painter in the great divorce, because it's one of the most brilliant examples of what we're going to talk about. But let's talk about C.S. Lewis and the concept he caught about letting go of me, letting go of my pride. So jump back to, let me show you where we're at. Oh my goodness, why does it freeze every time? All right, let's go back to book three, The Great Sin. If you're following along, I'm in Mere Christianity, book three, The Great Sin. All right. 
Let's just jump right to his definition. Now, what I want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive in its very nature. While the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Only out of having more of it than the next man. I'm going to let that just distill upon you. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being rich. Er, cleverer or good or more or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. Now, if you ever want to have some fun, search that paragraph in the conferences of this church, and you will see how often that sentence has been quoted. Now, let me give you the Book of Mormon version. Let me give you the Book of Mormon version of what C.S. Lewis is trying to teach so we can learn what I have to let go of. Fortunately, I'm going to have to erase this because I need the room. Turn with me to Jacob chapter 2 in the Book of Mormon. Let's turn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's turn to the Book of Mormon. Turn to Jacob chapter 2. The brilliance of the Book of Mormon is it's going to put it in a single verse. Look what the Book of Mormon does. Jacob chapter 2 Verse 17, everyone turn to verse 17. I would suggest, no, sorry, 13, 13, 13, 13. I would suggest to you that we can find everything that C.S. Lewis just defined in one verse. Look at this verse and tell me where pride starts. It's not, if I were to pinpoint the single word to say that's the beginning of pride, I don't think the word is abundant. C.S. Lewis said that. You're not proud of being rich. Abundance is not the problem. What's the problem here? Notice if I could boil it down to a single word. Anyone tell me what the word is? Because, well, lifted is what I'm going to do. You have obtained, the hand of providence has smiled upon you most pleasingly that you have attained many riches. And because some of you have obtained, that's the word. The Book of Mormon teaches exactly what C.S. Lewis taught. The problem is, I have obtained more. I don't want yellow. I have obtained more. I have more. I have more. Now, because I have more, go down to the very bottom, what do I suppose? Because I have more, I suppose that I am 
better. And when I suppose I'm better, what am I going to do? What am I going to do to me? And what am I going to do to you? That's exactly what C.S. Lewis is teaching. Because I have more, I think I'm better, and I'm going to lift and tear down. If I have more money than you, and I think I'm better, how am I going to persecute? I'm going to buy something that you can't buy, like a really expensive car, and I'm going to drive it around so that you can see me driving in it. More, better, persecute. That is the manifestation of pride. Now, you've got to be careful because sometimes it's, you have more, therefore I think you're better and I persecute me. It's still pride. And one of the dangers for Latter-day Saints is, I have more righteousness than you. I'm more righteous than you are, therefore I'm better. And I'm going to make sure you know it. And I'm going to persecute you. Another thing I would say is that also is like, oh, you know more, you, you have these theories in gospel and they don't match mine, I'll persecute you. Yeah. It always comes down to more, better, persecute. Now, very, let me, let me quick, quickly, let me throw in another brilliant author. Since we're doing brilliant authors whose teachings match the gospel, let me throw in another brilliant author who caught this same idea and illustrated it in one of his books. Ready? His name was Dr. Seuss. Watch the brilliance If we have an internet connection, which apparently we do not. Okay, I'll turn it off. I may lose my screen, though. Watch his commentary. I think this is so brilliant, what he's trying to say. Oh, it won't screen. All right, let me turn that back on. All right, here we go. Ready? Watch the brilliance, the same idea. Watch for more, watch for better, and watch for persecute. Ready? Now, the star belly sneeches had bellies with stars. The plain belly sneeches had none upon theirs. The stars weren't so big. They were really so small. You might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. See, see the whole commentary there? You might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. But because they had stars, all the star belly sneeches would brag, we're the best kind of sneeches on the beaches. See, because they have something that you don't, we're the, we're better. With their snoots in the air, they'd sniff and they'd snort, and they'd have nothing to do with the plain belly sort. And whenever they met someone they were out walking, they'd hike right on past them without even talking. When the star-bellied children went out to play ball, could they, a plain belly get in the game? Not at all. You could only play if your bellies had stars and the plain belly children had none upon theirs. 
When the Starbelly Sneetches had Frankfurter roasts or picnics or parties or marshmallow toasts, they never invited the plain belly Sneetches. They kept them out cold in the dark of the beaches. They kept them away, never let them come near, and that's how they treated them year after year. Do you see it? More, better, persecute. Competition. Now, who wins this game? This is a horrible game, and who wins it? Then one day, it seems, while the plain belly sneeches were moping and doping alone on the beaches, just sitting there wishing their bellies had stars, a stranger zipped up in the strangest of cars. My friends, he announced in a voice clear and keen, my name is Sylvester McMonkey McBean. I've heard of your troubles. I've heard you're unhappy, and I can fix that. I'm the fix-it-up chappy. I've come here to help you. I have what you need. My prices are low, and I work at great speed, and my work is 100% guaranteed. Then quickly, Sylvester McMonkey McBean put together a very peculiar machine. He said, you want stars like the Starbelly Sneech? My friends, you can have them for $3 each. Pay me your money, just pay me your money and hop right aboard. So they clambered inside and the big machine roared and it clonked and it bonked and it jerked and it burped and it bopped them about, but the thing really worked. When the plain belly Sneeches popped out, they had stars, they actually did. They had stars upon thars. Then they yelled at the ones who had stars at the start. We're exactly like you. You can't tell us apart. We're all just the same now, you snooty old smarties, and now we can come to your Frankfurter parties. Now, once you've had a taste of having more and being better, do you let it go easily? So tell me what they're going to do. They're going to take the very thing that I put you down because about, and now it's the new competition. It's the new more. Good grief, yelled the ones who had stars at the first. We're still the best Nietzsche's and they are the worst. But now how in the world will we know, they all frowned, if which kind is what or the other way round. Then up came McBean with a very sly wink and he said, things aren't quite as bad as you think. So you don't know who is who, that is perfectly true. But come with me, friends, do you know what I'll do? I'll make you again the best Nietzsche's on beaches and all it will cost you is $10 each's. Belly stars are no longer in style, said McBean. What you need is a trip through my star off machine. This wondrous contraption will take off your stars so you won't look like Sneetches who have them on dars. And that handy machine, working very precisely, removed all the stars from their tummy quite nicely. Now tell me what they're going to do. Now they have a different more than they had before, but they're going to think because of our more, we're better. And what are they about to do? Persecute. With snoots in the air, they paraded about and they opened their beaks and they let out a shout. We know who is who. There isn't a doubt. The best kind of sneeches are sneeches without. This is such a dumb game. <laughs> then, of course, those who had stars got frightfully mad. To be wearing a star now was frightfully bad. Then, of course, old Sylvester McMonkey Bean invited them to a star off machine. Then, of course, from then on, as you probably guessed, things really got into a horrible mess. All the rest of that day on those wild screaming beaches, the fix-it-up chappy kept fixing up sneeches. In again, out again, off again, on again. Through the machines, they raced round and about again, changing their stars every minute or two. They kept paying money. They kept running through until neither the plane nor the star bellies knew whether this one was that one or that one was this one or which one was what one or what one was who. Now, who wins the game? Then when every last cent of their money was spent, the fix-it-up chappy packed up and he went. And he laughed. 
He laughed as he drove in his car up the beach. They never will learn. No, you can't teach us Nietzsche. Now tell me why Dr. Seuss is writing this book. Why is he writing this book? I guarantee he read Mere Christianity. Here's his point, ready? But McBean was quite wrong, I'm quite happy to say, that the Sneetches got really quite smart on that day. The day they decided that Sneetches are Sneetches and no kind of Sneetch is the best on the beaches. That day all the Sneetches forgot about stars and whether they had one or not upon theirs. Do you understand this covenant in the temple? What you promised to let go of? Let me end with C.S. Lewis's version. Let me see if I can get the screen back up. Here is C.S. Lewis's solution. We must not think pride is something God forbids because he's offended at it or that humility is something he demands as do his own dignity, as if God himself was proud. He is not in the least worried about his dignity. The point is, he wants you to know him. He wants to give you himself. And he and you are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will in fact be humble, delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. He is trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible. Taking, trying to take off all the silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we've got ourselves up and we're strutting about like the little idiots we are. I wish I had got a bit further with humility myself. If I had, I could probably tell you more about the relief, the comfort of taking off the fancy dress, getting rid of the false self, and all of its, look at me, and aren't I a good boy, and all its posing and posturing, to get near it for even a moment is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. Now, how do you get there? One more time, let me show you my absolute favorite definition of humility. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you, of course, that he's nobody. That is not humility. To tear yourself down is not humility. It is an act of pride. What a beautiful dress. Oh, this old thing? Not humility. You taught such a great lesson, Brother Dunford. Oh, I could have done better. Not humility. You imagine walking up to Jesus and saying, what a wonderful atonement you wrought. And he says, oh, I could have done so much better. 
That is not an act of humility. It's actually an act of pride. You're still more better persecute. He will not be a greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you, of course, that he's nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a decent, cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you were saying to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. And then I think one of the greatest sentences, he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. May I suggest that is the temple covenant of sacrifice, letting go of the silly dress, the mask, playing this game instead of just loving people and wanting to bless their lives. Now, we didn't get to chastity. I'll leave you your homework will be to go back and read the chapter on Christian marriage. The chapter on sexual morality is this law of chastity. The chapter on Christian marriage is this Christianity. He nailed it. If you've ever listened to or read Elder Holland's Souls, Symbols, and Sacraments, he's going to make the exact same argument. I bear you my testimony that you need a Redeemer. And when you discover that, you're going to start to obey. And then when you finally realize, I can't make it without him, I need to just have him tear off the, the dragon's skin completely. And you give yourself to Christ, you will find yourself wanting to obey. My quest is to obey. It is not an irritant. You will find yourself letting go of the one thing that is so hard to let go of, and that's our pride. What are you remembering? What are you remembering? The painter in the great divorce. Will you promise me you'll remember that? Come back to this conversation in your head. Let it go. Let go of the silly dress. Let go of the game. Who cares who has a star and who doesn't? No snitch is the best on the beaches. We are Heavenly Father's children, and we ought not to play that game. I bear you my testimony of these gospel principles, and I'm so grateful to see that the Holy Ghost inspired someone who did not have access to the restoration to come to the same conclusions. To me, it confirms their truthfulness. I bear you my testimony that you need a Redeemer. And I need a redeemer. And so we just do our very best because I love him and I want to follow him. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.